The word troll came across my ears one day, and I go, what is a troll? I hear this trolling all the time. I hear this term now. You know, what is that? And this guy laughs at me. He goes, you, you are a troll. You guys, your band. It's funny that you're asking what's a troll, because you guys have been trolling your audience for 30 years. And I'm like, well, what do you mean? You know, oh, all the jokes you know you play. I remember we did this one thing where we, it was April Fool's Day, and we did this benefit for, like, old growth tree forest thing happening. They invited us to come at the last minute to sing some acapella tunes and it was like Kenny Loggins and Hart and Carol King and Outkast, lots of people. There were like 70,000 people at this thing. It was a big event. I mean, we happened to just roll into Portland on the day of this event and we had no idea what was going on. And Neil Young, I think, had a gig also in town around the same time. So there were all these rumors that Neil Young was going to play at this benefit, right? Of course, he didn't show up at that benefit. But what we did was, since that was already a rumor, we said, well, let's just tell a few of the right people. It'll get out there that Neil Young's going to sit in with fish. <laughs> and so, you know, during the gig, we act all excited. And at one point, you know, there's an extra guitar stand on the stage and there's a stool and there's an extra amp, you know. And you can tell people are like, mum, 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 you know, oh, there's a buzz in the room, you know. And finally, toward the end of the gig, we go off and we come out to do the encore and we come back out and Chase, wow, I'm really so excited. You know, we got this special guest, you know, Neil Young. And the place goes through the fucking roof. They just, I mean, every, you know, (laughs) and then he goes, April Fool's. And, oh, that's the loudest boo we ever got. I mean, that was so great. It just... Like, they were pissed. Uh, And then their consolation prize was me, Clown Boy, coming out and singing, you know, like a Sid Barrett tune and playing the vacuum cleaner. That's fish drummer John Fishman looking back to April 1st, 1993, when he impersonated Neil Young by way of Sid Barrett, which, as he later learned, is the quintessence of troll. In this bonus episode, we're going to examine a few additional key moments from Fish's 36-year career. I'm Dean Budnick, and this is Long May They Run. Over the course of 10 episodes, we've explored Fish from a variety of perspectives. And now, we're taking it to 11, with this encore, in which we'll share some moments that didn't make their way into the first season arc. So if for some reason this is your starting point, jump back to episode one, a pattern language. That's where the action really begins. What I'm going to do here is touch on a few topics and stories that were not the subjects of individual episodes. One of the initial ways that fans have connected with Fish is through the band's sense of humor. Here's keyboard player Paige McConnell talking about the group's Michael Jackson bluffs on Halloween over the years. We mess with people sometimes, but it was always a big tease and a big reveal. And were they going to play Thriller this year? And never happened. And it was kind of an, a running joke, I thought, between the band and the fans. We usually are pretty honest about these things and try to be pretty forthcoming, but not at the risk of missing out on a great opportunity to pull a gag or something. So, Jimmy was sitting with Poster Nutbag and playing his favorite album, 
which low was the very same album that Fish was playing as their Halloween album at Rosemont Horizon that night. To be clear, Fish actually performed The Who's Quadrophenia that evening. But while that bait-and-switch was amusing, the group was not attempting to become a comedy act. It all just flowed naturally, as longtime lighting designer Chris Carota affirms. Nobody was showboating or pretending to be someone they weren't when they're on stage. They didn't put on their, okay, it's time to go be the rock star hat. They were just the same guys on stage that they were off stage, <laughs> and they still are. That hasn't changed at all in the 31 years I've been there. They'd be joking around about something, I can't even think of what, in the dressing room and falling down laughing, and then time to go on stage and play, and somehow whatever was so funny in the dressing room would like all of a sudden be funny on stage, and then they would just, by naturally being themselves, get a way for the audience to connect to the joke as well, and all of a sudden everybody's laughing. Trey echoes this sentiment as he thinks back to the band's 1992 New Year's Eve performance at Matthews Arena in Boston, which was broadcast old-school style via FM radio on Boston's WBCN. When fans entered the venue, they received a flyer, which read in part, As you may already know, Tonight's concert will be broadcast tomorrow, January 1st, at noon, on WBCN. In other words, we've been blessed with the opportunity to play with people's minds. We've come up with a bunch of new language signals designed to confuse and confound the average radio listener. These signals will be written on signs and held up by Trey at various times throughout the night. This list explains each signal. Number one. Mass hysteria. If Trey holds up a sign that says mass hysteria, it means you should scream hysterically. Imagine turning on your radio and hearing 6,000 people screaming in terror. Sort of a war of the worlds thing. Number three, yay boo. When Trey holds up this sign and then points up, you would yay. And when he points down, you would boo. Alternating quickly between these would be pretty surreal. Number four, eggplant. This would mean that Trey would raise his arm, and when he drops it, you would scream, eggplant. Number five, one clap. When Trey holds up this sign, do nothing until he first raises his arm, then drops it, at which point you would clap once, loud. This way we can do something like introduce Paul, and the whole crowd will clap once in unison. Very strange to the listener. Number six, lip flop you would flop your lips with your finger while humming, times 6,000 people. That wasn't the secret language. That was the screw with the radio audience. All this stuff is that we don't draw a line between backstage and onstage like most bands do. Like we're laughing backstage. It's always been like this. Then we're like walking to the stage and like, are we on stage? Like, what? It's like we just keep doing it. So we were backstage. We're like, oh, man, wouldn't it be? Oh, these guys are going to be listening on the radio and... We should like play a song and everybody go like one clap instead of a cheer <laughs> or boo. 
We're like, you suck, or something like that. Like, you know, so we would like hand out these. We'd like, bow, 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 boo. Or, you know, like, oh, man. To my mind, all of this is about so much more than music. It's about the band members being active and engaged with their surroundings in a given city. They're not just stepping on stage and blindly proclaiming, hello, Cleveland. To bring up an example from the past summer, Fish was performing in St. Louis at the same time the local hockey team, the St. Louis Blues, were in Boston, playing a decisive game seven of the Stanley Cup Finals versus the Bruins. After the Blues clinched the cup, Fish broke into Laura Branigan's Gloria, which had become the rallying cry for the team during their championship run. Sticking with the topic of fans having a hand in Fish's musical selections, a random moment on the lawn at the Garden State Arts Center in 1992 led to a song that would later appear on the band's album Hoist. Shirley Halperin is now the executive editor of music at Variety. However, in July 1992, she was a college student at Rutgers, attending one of her first Fish shows when the band performed on the Horde tour. I went to the Horde Fest, only had lawn seats, way in the back, and this was when the guys in Fish would like walk around the crowd and sometimes talk to people or get to know people. Maybe they weren't as recognizable in 1992 so they could get away with it. So at this one show, John Fishman was walking around the lawn and I just like, you know, being the brazen fan that I was, I just walked right up to him and started talking to him. And I don't know how we got into it, but I mentioned that I was going to Israel in my year abroad, which was just like a month away at that point. And we started talking about Israel. He asked me a lot about it. He seemed very interested in it. We had like a real conversation standing there, like surrounded by, you know, thousands of people. Shirley was born in Israel and had lived there a few years before moving to the United States. When she returned to her homeland during that year abroad, one of the people who visited was Fish's drummer. After she returned home, almost a year to the date from that Horde show, her phone rang. One day out of the blue, I got a phone call from Fishman asking if I would talk to Mike on the phone and help them learn the song Jerusalem of Gold. The Jerusalem of Gold is a beautiful, beautiful song. They're like real traditional Israeli, almost like a hymn. I think the band knew that I was a native Hebrew speaker. My mom was actually a Hebrew professor. And Fishman had just been to Israel. You know, he really connected with the country and, and really saw the beauty of it. And I didn't really know the words that well. I mean, I know the melody, but I actually had to call my mom, who was in Israel at the time, and have her go through it line by line so that I could teach it to Mike over the phone. It was a little ridiculous. It was very, very difficult. And I remember like hours on the phone that one night, just going through it line by line, explaining what every word meant, enunciating the words, you know, keeping my mom up at like God knows all hours. And yeah, and then it ended up being on the album, which was like a complete surprise to me. And you know, if I'm a footnote in the fish folklore for the song, I'm super proud of it.
I'm Lauren Sherman, the writer behind Puck's fashion and beauty memo line sheet. And I'd like to welcome you to my new show, Fashion People. On every episode of Fashion People, I'll be talking to insiders about the stuff we're all whispering between the press releases. From M&A rumors to celebrity stylist dish to the future of legacy media. Be sure to follow and listen to Fashion People, a presentation of Odyssey in partnership with Puck. Available on the free Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. They said it couldn't be done. They say it bordered on impossible. When someone says I can't do something, I usually agree with them. (laughs) And now, against all odds, this completely mediocre comedy podcast has done the unthinkable. They got listeners. We got listeners. No way. Amazing. Now available on the Odyssey app or wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm so happy we're at Odyssey now. Oh my God, they're amazing. The Commercial Break Podcast. You heard it here last. The initial idea for this bonus episode was prompted by an invitation I received to participate in an AMA on the FISH subreddit r slash FISH. When I first conceptualized Long May They Run, I didn't want this podcast to be a formal FISH biography that proceeded in a chronological fashion. Instead, my goal was to explore individual topics and build the broader narrative from there. For instance, the Halloween episode wasn't about Halloween per se, but rather the group's efforts at musical curation. Still, in speaking with the band members, they did touch on some of the individual Halloween performances. Episode seven of Long May They Run focused on Fish's visual aesthetic, while episode eight looked at Halloween. These two elements came together in 2014 when Fish performed Chilling Thrilling Sounds of the Haunted House, using the 1964 sound effects record as a starting point and then creating original music. We'd actually been talking about that as an option for many, many years, that we could do something interesting with that. It was sort of covering an album, as we did with the Beatles or the Who or something, Talking Heads, but we really made it our own thing, more so than in years past. And so it started us in a a new direction of that we could do things outside the box. And it was something I was really excited about because it was a a really important album for me growing up around Halloween time. And actually, Chris McGregor as well had very strong feelings about the album and and very vivid memories of, oh, now I'm supposed to be scared of the birds too, you know. (laughs) So he, he had a great relationship with that album and I did too. And then for me personally, it was a lot of work just trying to figure out how it would work and sampling these things. And I'd never done anything like that before and and how it was going to fit into the set and how these songs were actually going to play. And we didn't know. We rolled the dice a little bit as we do sometimes, I guess, and tried something a little bit different. And people really liked it. And I really liked it, too. I liked that Halloween a lot. Chris McGregor, who we met in Episode 7, took the lead on the stage design. He remembers his role in the overall creative process, which began with fashioning the haunted house itself. Despite the name of the album, the haunted house couldn't just appear on stage, it was required to serve a purpose as well. The idea of the structure, the haunted house itself, probably came out of the very first meeting. It needed to have a reason for existing other than just being a haunted house because we're doing the sounds of the haunted house. And so the thought of making it 
an actual stage and performance area for the band and then deciding to put the band inside the house as opposed to like on the roof of it or whatever and do a little bit of a light show where we're not even seeing the band, but we are seeing enough. We're seeing silhouettes on the window and stuff, enough to know that they are in fact in there and that they are in fact playing the music that we're hearing. So that makes that interesting. And then for me, it was just fleshing it all out and deciding to place it in you know this classic setting with the gates and the wall and the gargoyles and then roll it into place in a graveyard with lots of dry ice and then populate it with the walking dead and have them do some dance and movement around so that we could get away with keeping the band locked up inside this this house for a while because we had all this other business going on that was you know ooky and spooky this was true collaboration was developing the first jam working with trey on the stop and start aspects of it very creative very fun he'd be sending me tapes from stuff they were rehearsing like in the rehearsal room on tour say what do you think what can we do here by the way in case you're ever looking to hire a creative team to spice up your halloween or new year's eve performance john fishman has some advice for you on new year's eve 2009 the drummer climbed into a disco ball that was then loaded into a cannon which shot him through the roof of the arena. For the remainder of the set, he was replaced by a fan named Sarah, whose skills were oddly reminiscent of Fishman's. Later, when fans walked outside after the show, the disco ball was revealed to have crashed into a white car that had been parked in front of the venue. The drummer recalls working with Dave Gallo on this gag. A great question to ask creative people who you're just initiating a relationship with is to just kind of come right out of the gates and go, you know, let them know in some way or another, like, we want you to be you. Well, so there must be some idea that you've always wanted to do, but no one's allowed you to do. For one reason or another, you haven't been able to do on stage. And Dave said, Oh, well, as a matter of fact, I've always wanted to fire someone out of a cannon and make it do this thing where it makes it look like they're going through the roof. And then when the crowd leaves the venue, outside is like a crushed car, like the person landed or the, you know. So, of course, then we conceived of, you know, how we would do it, the music and all that kind of stuff. Jumping back to Halloween, on October 31st, 2010, Fish performed Little Feet's 1978 live album, Waiting for Columbus, as their Halloween costume. On October 26, 2019, Paul Barrere, who appeared on the original record, passed away. So it seemed fitting to share Fish bassist Mike Gordon's memories of covering Waiting for Columbus. I spoke with Mike prior to Barrere's death. Here, he starts out talking about Fish's 1996 musical costume, the talking heads remain in light. I think because the elements in that album are so simple and open-ended, rather than being a dense double album with lots of parts and instrumentation, it leaves more room to just kind of bask in what's there and try to do something with it. So that was a real pleasing experience. The Little Feet one, you know, sometimes what's really special is the practicing. And both on my own, getting to get in the mind of another bass player 
or singer. And then in the practice room of the band and finding ways to sort of tackle it accurately, but also to make it our own in some ways. And every time something about this artist that we basked in got into our own sensibilities and musicality where we started playing like that and writing like that. It's a cool fringe benefit of doing them is just getting this deeper level of influence. And with Little Feet, I had been a fan for a long time before we did that album since high school, but I didn't really realize everything going on under the hood in terms of some of the rhythms, this way of taking rootsy, soulful music, but having the musical basis a lot more complex than one would realize. And starting with rhythms where beats are added and subtracted and you don't even realize it in some cases. So that was informative. (laughs) I mean, you know, I was just such a big fan anyway. In a fascinating reversal, Little Feet had already covered Fish, taking on Sample in a Jar for the Mockingbird Foundation's 2001 Sharon in the Groove compilation album, as Little Feet co-founder Bill Payne recalls. Sample in a Jar was something that assimilated into the Little Feet vocabulary quite easily. When Lowell and I first started the band in 1969, the notion of Little Feet was that we keep it somewhat elastic with regard to who's in the band, we need horns, how do we want to frame our music, basically. And it's about influences that go out from our group to others and those influences that come in. So that was a pretty big deal, recording Sample in a Jar from a younger band and she acknowledged that their influences were touching us as well. As for Fish performing Waiting for Columbus... I was blindsided completely by it. (laughs) I visited with Mike Gordon at least a time or two when I was up in uh, Vermont, and uh, so I called him up and I just profusely thanked him and the rest of the band for tackling it. Bill's response was appreciated. As Trey Anastasio notes... My experience has been in the music industry that no one, regardless of their position, feels anything but great when they're getting a genuine compliment from another musician. I wrote a thank you letter to Paul McCartney about two years ago. Heartfelt that when I was born in 1964, he was in the greatest band in the world. And that right now, I think he is arguably got one of the greatest bands in the world. His band is badass. It's got the best songbook, putting on great shows. I was writing him a letter. I said, through his agent, I just need to tell you how much this means to me because what you're saying to me as a 55-year-old is that I have hope. If you go see Paul McCartney right now, he's going to put on a great show. He's got great songs. Singers are incredible. He's got a five-piece band, not a 12-piece band. His drummer is wicked, and he cares. He's still up there singing, kept himself in good shape. This says to a 55-year-old musician, you're really young. You've got 25 years of this left, or 20 years of this left, and you still could be touring. And I just wanted to thank him. I just wanted to say, you have no idea what this means to me. Sir Paul wrote a lovely note in response. Years earlier, Trey had been gracious when Fish fan John Popper approached him regarding a musical tribute. We first heard John back in episode three when he guested with Fish at the Ukrainian Music Hall in 1989. Eight years later, his band Blues Traveler agreed to record a song for a very special Christmas three 
to benefit the Special Olympics. Well, the thing is, I was obsessed with fish. I had their entire discography in my car CD changer. They were just so brilliant. And Divided Sky was my favorite. I was obsessed with that song, and I realized it was the same chords as D-I-N-G-O, 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 or B-I-N-G-O, Bingo was his name-O. And um, that's also Hark the Herald Angels saying, Glory to the Newborn King. And that really led me to think that there's possibly a Christmas medley in there somewhere. And I wanted to write something that worked with the same chords that it, towards the end I would reference Divided Sky. But then when the opportunity came up to write a song for Christmas, I was like, oh, okay, I know what to do. And I had a melody already that was similar, you know, it was to the Divided Sky chords, but it was nothing as elaborate. So I'm thinking, okay, so I'll use that one and write some uh, verses. Comes a time for Christmas and I really have to... And then it has that little thing after each chorus. And then somewhere in the middle, I'll just go right into the exact melody of Divided Sky. As if a cold and frozen soul is warm to love by love's own hand. So goes a prayer if for her may peace on earth and goodwill to man. At twenty below the winter storm it billows and the fire. And it's almost like you're writing for a Broadway song because you have to be very ad- adherent to the melody to pull that off. And I had so many verses. The, what really tied it together for me is that was at the end again where I had the reference of Divided Sky but I already really milked Divided Sky and because it was a charity I just called Trey straight up and said look let's I want to really use this melody so let's I want to write this song and give you credit for writing it with me and he said yeah sure you know he's made a couple jokes I'll see you in court buddy but you know it was for charity so he was fine with it and um, that really gave me license to just Divided Sky the shit out of it which is what he did And as for the name of the song? I called it Christmas so that we could copyright Christmas. That was really why I did that. I want to just call it Christmas. And so I have not gotten any checks. I have not been able to sue anybody over Christmas. But if I could somehow sue Santa Claus, it would make one hell of a movie. One of the questions I received in the Reddit AMA was whether there were any topics I brought up during my interviews with the band members that they didn't want to discuss. As I responded during the AMA, the only times they were relatively quiet on a given topic was when they couldn't remember the answer or just didn't have much to say about a subject. Here, John Fishman offers a lengthy response about why the group has remained relatively silent about politics at least in a collective public setting. If anyone looks at any of my Facebook pages, I'm very passionate about ranked choice voting, and I'm more politically engaged vocally. I wear it on my sleeve, and I'm, you know... But I gotta say, over the years, like, in terms of conversations in the band, very few of them are ever political. I honestly couldn't tell you what candidates any of my bandmates support 
for example, in any presidential election that I've been in this band. If I had to say right now, like who any of my bandmates voted for over the last 36 years, I actually don't know as a fact. I could guess, but I actually don't know. I mean, maybe part of that is because I'm probably so tiresome when it comes to political conversation that none of them want to engage me because I get so riled up and <laughs> start ranting about shit. They probably don't want to hear me rant. So there's always been, you know, kind of differences in political engagement. As a band, we've never really been able to agree on how to approach politics, right? Between the four of us, there's been a wide range of views on how to engage with the world of politics. But there's also been an overriding argument that all four of us have been really on the same page with, which is it's not unreasonable to want there to be a place, places in the world and in life for things to exist for their own sake. It's probably a better thing to like, well, let's meet where we do have things in common, which is on the musical field. And let's do the music for the sake of music because we do all agree there and we all are on the same page there. And that's where all the best stuff happens. I should point out that Fish has been an active supporter of Headcount, the organization that promotes voter registration and participation. Plus, as we noted in episodes 9 and 10, the group has reached countless individuals through their charitable endeavors. Beyond that, I think it's important to emphasize that the band did discuss the issue of political engagement rather exhaustively and then came to a collective decision on this matter. While working on this podcast, I've come to appreciate the depth of communication the band members maintain with one another on so many levels. Here, Trey reflects on this in the context of his personal musical journey, which then ripples out to the audience. I started as a drummer. I learned the divisions of rhythm. I practiced for a year on a my drum teacher made me use a pillow before he'd even let me get a practice pad. And hours and hours and hours and hours and hours and hours dividing rhythm. Five against four, one against seven against four. You know what I mean? This stuff gets into your DNA. Now, when you improvise, I can kind of hear people who skipped over that building block. It's kind of a pet peeve of mine. I kind of think kids should start with drum lessons, all of them, no matter what your instrument is because you spend so much time really learning how to swing the feel. I mean, it's a world unto its own rhythmic feel. So then you learn your scales and you learn all this stuff and you do all the work and you do all the work and then you forget it. Hopefully you don't go up on stage and play scales. You know what I mean? You don't speak English with grammar. You know, the English is the impediment between your heart and my heart. I'm trying to communicate a concept to you and I have to, plow my way through the English language. It's the same way with music. It's a language of the heart. And I'm trying to connect with the people in the audience and the other people on stage the way I'm feeling through this box with metal wires on it using connective tissue of rhythm and tone color and, and all this stuff, right? But it's all got to be done without thinking. He also acknowledges the extent to which John Fishman works to achieve that goal. A lot of his practice work is about independence of limbs. He wants to be able to be prepared for any musical thought that he has in any of his four limbs. And it's just hours and hours and hours and hours and hours in preparation to be able to be that loose. 
I'm so grateful and glad that as a band, it just happened to be that we, as people, like live music. I just love playing my drums. Whether I'm in the studio with my bandmates and I'm playing my drums, or whether I'm playing my drums by myself at home practicing, or whether I'm playing my drums out on a stage, I enjoy playing my drums equally in all three contexts. But I'm just really glad that the one that, as a band, we seem to excel at happens to be the one part of being a musician that you can't really replace with the internet and that society it seems on some level will always value and i'm really grateful for the fact that the strength of our outfit is playing live all of which speaks volumes about the majesty of fish and why we selected the group for season one of long may they run and in this spirit who better to join us once again than live music fanatic Bill Walton to offer a few words of inspiration to send us on our way towards season two, where we'll examine another inspiring band. I work all the time, but when I'm not working, I'm on my way to a show, at a show, or on my way to the next show. And what we're looking for is somebody who can take nothing and create, create a dream, a dream for all of us. Long may they run, and no limits, no rules, no boundaries, and it just keeps going, and that sense of improvisation is you never really know where it's gonna go, what's gonna happen, what you're gonna do when you get there, and when you have this magic moment, this magic opportunity in life, when you're at one with the music, it's the greatest feeling on earth. So let's get going here and let's get this concert underway, get rolling and just keep praying that they keep playing forever more. Long may you run, long may they run so that I can keep running, yeah. Thanks again to everyone who participated in season one of Long May They Run. We drew from over 90 interviews to create this podcast, and I want to express my deep thanks to all of you who made the time to speak with us. What's next? Stay tuned. In the interim, go out there and support those bands that move you. Long May They Run. Long May They Run is a creation and production of C13 Originals. Executive produced by Chris Corcoran, Zach Levitt, Lloyd Lockeridge, and me. Season one is written by me and directed by Lloyd Lockeridge. Produced by Perry Crowell. Mixed and mastered by Chris Basil. Production coordination by Terrence Malingone. And production support by Sean Cherry. Creative artwork by Kurt Courtney. Press by Hilary Schuff and marketing by Josephina Francis. The theme song is Right Off 
written by Miles Davis and performed by Kyle Hollingsworth, Jake Sinninger, Dave Watts, and Garrett Sayers, and mixed by Andrew Dros Liposchuk. A special thank you to Rich Schaefer and to the band, band management, and all who participated in this season. I'm Bobby Finger. And I'm Lindsay Weber. Do you ever see a new face or name on your news feeds and say, who the heck is that? Our podcast, Who Weekly, is everything you need to know about the celebrities you don't. Think of us as your cheat code to People Magazine, your glossary for Hollywood, a shortcut to understanding pop culture at large. For the past eight years, Who Weekly has been telling listeners everything they need to know about the celebrities they don't. The New Yorker says we spelunk deep into the demimonde with convivial delight. That's a direct quote. Mostly, we're going to explain to you Irish star Barry Keoghan's sudden rise to fame and relationship with a not-so-under-the-radar pop princess named Sabrina. The fake wedding Real Housewives star Cynthia Bailey had to promote a limo rental company. And why all the Gen Zers you know are talking about a guy named Benson Boone. Each episode goes deep into the biggest celebrity stories of the moment. And if you're still confused, we even have a weekly call-in episode where we answer the most burning celebrity queries. Who Weekly airs twice weekly with brand new episodes on Tuesdays and Fridays. Listen and follow Who Weekly, an Odyssey podcast, available now for free on the Odyssey app and wherever you get your podcasts.